0: Again, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Adrian, and I'm kind of kicking off our new series for the whole of the summer uh, that will see us through till September, which we've entitled uh, "Stories for the Journey." Uh, and what we're going to do through the summer is we just recognise that basically from this Sunday onwards, uh, it might be sporting fixtures, it might be holidays, it might be visiting relatives, it may be the sun's out and you think nature is to be enjoyed. It just becomes a moment where actually our rhythm of gathering gets affected. And rather than fighting with that, we kind of work with it and say, okay, it probably isn't going to be that all of us can say, hey, we're going to be here every week until September. And so kind of make sense of that. We then say, well, let's then do a series that if you are here every week, it's going to benefit you. But if you aren't here every week, you're going to be able to get enough because it's connected in terms of theme, but not in terms of the subject that you're looking at. And so what we thought would be great to do is through the summer is pick up different stories in the Old Testament and look at how they become stories for the journey, stories that do us good as we journey with one another and with God. And what we're going to discover is that each of the stories we'll look at each week kind of reveal something about who God is and also reveal something about how who God is works with people like us in all our frailty. And maybe you're starting to go, well, I don't, I'm not frail. Oh, believe me, you are. Because actually, if we were to take a point and say, right, let's look from this moment through the last 12 months. Actually, let's not go that far. This moment till the last two months. My guess is within those two months, you'd have had a moment where you thought, oh, man. I can't quite do this, or if people really knew what was going on in me then, and it's just, that's our reality, and it isn't putting a brave face on it, saying, hey, I've got it all together, it's rather saying, do you know what, sometimes I've got it together, and sometimes it feels like everything has fallen apart, and what we're going to see through these stories is that God longs and loves to work with us in all of our frailty, And so we're going to look at these different stories and how we're going to do it is slightly differently. Obviously, normally we kind of pick up the Bible, read a passage, and then kind of talk out of that passage and say, okay, what's that got to say to us? Rather than do that, we thought it would actually be fun to then kind of do this how it would have been done. Is stories would have been told orally. They wouldn't have been read collectively. And in them being told orally, it would then become part of you, the listener, the storyteller, all becoming part of the journey of hearing this story. And then as the listener thinking, oh, what does this mean about God? What does this mean about me? And that's what we thought would be good to do, that we will occasionally look in on the story, but each week we'll get to look and tell the whole of the story. And so today, I get the privilege of telling our first story, which is going to be the story of Elijah, which, for those of you who want to check up what I say afterwards, seems to be in the Bible. You can look at it, uh, 1 Kings 17 through to 2 Kings chapter 2. And in it, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this story, zooming on this amazing guy called Elijah, who will look at it and think, man, he's not like us. And then we're going to discover that through the story, he is just like us. And through it, though, we're going to discover something about who God is as well. But before we get into Elijah, I want to kind of set the scene. Because the danger is when you jump into a story, you forget that this story is part of a connection of lots of stories that are throughout the Bible. And part of a much bigger story of God's desire to rescue everyone back into what it looks like to be part of his his family that's characterized by love. But at this moment, we find ourselves in this story at a period of time where there were different kings uh, in the nation. And those kings had come about because of something that had gone on some time before. You see, the people of God had been called as a family to be those that revealed him and loved him. And it started through one family that had a father called Abraham and a mother called Sarah, who God had promised and said, I'm going to take you and cause you to be a blessing to all other people, because I'm going to call you as my own, and you're then going to live in a way honoring me and revealing me that will do everyone else good. That was the call. And then what happened is that that family expanded, and to cut long story short, is that they lost sight often of how they were meant to do others good, and rather than that moment of privilege kind of bringing a responsibility, it often brought a privilege that said, hey, we can do this regardless of everyone else. And then also got to these points of saying, hey, I know we're meant to be distinctive, but we'd quite like to look like everyone else. And these moments of then saying, hey, maybe God's not as good as he said he was. Maybe we should give ourselves to other people. And it gets this moment where the people come to their kind of spiritual leader at that point, a guy called Samuel, who's like the mouthpiece of God to all of the people. And they come to Samuel and they say, we want a king like all the other nations. Now at this point, as we're reading the big story, we're going to say, but, but don't you understand, you've already got a king, it's God. And he's really good and he's after your best. Remember, he rescued you continuously. He's good for you. And yet they say, no, we want a king, a human king, just like all the other nations. And so Samuel goes to God and says, hey, is this okay? Because I feel gutted about this. And God shares his heart and says, hey, I was their king. I want to be their king. But because of my love for them, I'll let them have what they want. I'll give them a human king. And so they get a king, and they get a guy called Saul who's good. And seems to be what you'd expect of a human king. He's kind of cool, attractive, powerful, and seems to be the kind of person who's like, yeah, this is the guy we want as king. <laughs> All of you think, thinking, I can see what Saul would have looked like immediately. <laughs> and he was king, but the thing is, he was flawed. And his flaw is he worried about what everyone else thought. And so rather than doing what he was meant as king, as calling the people to keep knowing God and revealing God, or loving God and revealing God, he worried what everyone was doing and what other people and other nations would think. And so he led to a point of just continuously being governed by fear which led him into dark places and led the people of God into dark places. So much so that his rule was to end. And God found like an unlikely character to be king. And he found this one who's like a shepherd boy, just hanging out in fields, knew more about animals than he did about people. And yet what was different about this boy was his heart was after God. And he wanted to know God. He wanted to love God. He wanted to reveal God. And so God calls this one, who's called David, and says he's going to become king. And he becomes king, and he is a very cool king. Like, he is known as the best king, the king of kings. But he's still human, and he's still a bit flawed. And so even within his desire as one who has his heart after God, he makes tough decisions. Makes decisions that cost people their lives, cost people their wives. And in that, God still doesn't give up. But actually says, This one who models what it is to have a heart after me, I'm actually going to cause from his line one to come who will reign forever and yet will be consistent, will not be flawed, and will reign with righteousness and mercy and goodness and love. That's what's promised. And so the people think, wow, King David's good and his line's going to keep coming. And then then comes another king and it's his son and he's called Solomon. Solomon. And even in the transition, there's this darkness that's starting to come over, because King David, in his heart and passion for God and saying, hey, continue my work, build a temple that reveals who God is, then says, and have vengeance on those who are against me. Like, what? You meant, like, be a blessing to all people. Have vengeance. You meant to be a blessing. Have vengeance. And it's this dark cloud that starts to come. So Solomon gets the crown, and he's amazing. Like, he builds the temple and gathers treasure beyond anything you can imagine, and amazing, beautiful wives. And at this point, we start to realize that it's gone a bit wrong. Because he'd lived with this passion for God, but he also started to live with this passion for himself and how good he was. So much so that by the time Solomon gets to the end of his kingdom, he looks more like Pharaoh, who God had rescued his people from, than David, a man after God's heart. See, Solomon, by the end of his life, was, had slaves. He wasn't going to have that. Had accumulated wealth at the expense of everyone else and done as many deals as he could with as many different people, compromising who he is truly meant to be as a lover of God and a revealer of God. And so then it gets to this point where the king dies and his son takes the crown. Now, his son, like, makes this moment, and he says, hey, to the older guys, what should I do here? Because others in the nation are coming to me and saying, hey, your dad put pressure on us, pressure on us for taxes, like, we can't stand this. Can you do something about it? So he goes to the older guys and says, what should I do? And they say, hey, I wonder if you'd cut them a break. He then goes to the younger guys, his mates, and he says, Look, the older guys have said that, but they're old school. Like, what should we do? Because we're new school. And they say, man, you've got to forge your way. Where your dad was heavy-handed, you need to be doubly heavily-handed. They think they knew taxes. You need to reinvent the word taxes. And so that's what he does. Man, just an aside, how often do we think we've got it sussed? rather than listening to the wisdom of what's been before. And so anyway, this guy, he kind of gets that point and says, that's it, you thought you had it bad. I've just spelt the word bad differently and redefined it. And as a way, then the whole nation breaks in two. And you find that suddenly the one crown becomes two, and there becomes two kings. You have a king of the northern kingdoms called Israel, and a king of the southern kingdom called Judah. And that kingdom, the Judah one, God's eventually going to cause everything he promised to come out. That through that kingdom, a line of David will come one who will be the king that was always promised. You see, we have the bigger story of how the story ends, that Jesus comes and picks up the crown and says, I'll be the king that you've always been looking for. But before we get to that crown, before we get to that king, I want us to focus on this crown and this king in the northern kingdom, Judah. Because in this kingdom is where we're going to find Elijah. But before we get there, we've got to understand that what happened is that these kings just kept getting worse. You have the odd exception between the two kingdoms where there's a few that were okay, But actually, they kind of went on the line of Solomon and his son and kept saying, hey, you thought you did this bad. We're going to do this even better. Stand aside. We can bring chaos. And that's what they did. They just kept getting worse and worse. And so you get seven kingdoms later until you get to this king called Ahab. And Ahab, like he was this king who basically decided... I don't think God is as good as everyone thinks. It seems to me when I look out, there's other gods out there that seem pretty good. And so he teams up with his wife called Jezebel, who's just someone who likes to kill people, it seems. And in it, they kind of go on this vengeance of just killing anyone who says they like Yahweh, the God of Abraham. And rather say, no, we want to be about Baal. And so they put up loads of different altars and kill different things to worship this God. And it's that that goes. And rather than being a king that's going to lead this people into knowing who God is and loving and honoring him and revealing who God is to all the nations around, they're the exact opposite. And so what God does through this period of the kings is he raises up different individuals to be his mouthpiece and say, hey, like a lollipop lady, standing up and just saying, you're not meant to go this way. Stop. Remember who you are. Remember, you're going to be the people who know and love God. And known and loved by God. And then get to reveal him to all the people. But unfortunately, the kings don't listen to the lollipop men and women. And the prophets get silenced. And there's this one prophet with Ahab who comes on the scene. And he's just there. And it's Elijah. And Elijah is like the weatherman. That's how he's introduced to us. That's how we pick up his story, is that Ahab's on his role of building different things that dishonor who God is, calling people and the whole of the nation to say, hey, let's not worry about God. Let's look after these gods of our own making. And Elijah appears on the scene. We don't know where from. We just know he comes in. And he meets with King Ahab, and he says, hey, I've come to tell you what the weather's going to be for the foreseeable future, and it is going to be hot, hot, hot. It's going to be so hot, it's not going to rain. It's not going to rain until I say so again. And at that point, King Ahab doesn't go, oh, no, what should I do? Rather, King Ahab thinks, I hate people like you. And we're going to discover through this story that Ahab at this point thinks, man, we need to kill him. Because that's the only way we can deal with this, obviously, because that's how we do with everything, kill them. And so he's like, we're going to get this. We're going to get this guy. Now, having done his weather report, and you know, we're used to very nice weather report people, you know, who come along and say, tomorrow it's going to be why well, don't I Sorry, it's a quick aside about weather. Why do people tell us the weather that has been? Why does the weather start like that? Yesterday was like this, today has been like that, tomorrow. That's the one we wanted to know about. Who cares what it's been like? <laughs> Elijah wasn't like that. He comes on the scene and says, Hey, I'm not telling you about what it's been like, I'm telling you what it's gonna be. It ain't gonna rain. And that is bad news. But in this moment where Ahab is simmering with the news, thinking, man, this is not good. We need to do something about him. God rescues Elijah and takes him into hiding, hiding in the most unexpected place, which I'll introduce you now to Ronald Raven. Oh, that was Julia Henley's idea. I thought he was a brilliant one, Ronald Raven. Um, So we get Ronald Raven where... Elijah is taken out, so Ronald Raven can't stand up. Um, <laughs> is it, what more can you expect from three quid? Um, so Ronald Raven is there because God takes Elijah into hiding, into this ravine where there's a brook. And God says, look, you're going to be okay here. Though there's not going to be rain, you can keep drinking from this brook, this stream. And then I'm going to send ravens like Ronald who are going to come daily whir, 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 and feed you. I don't, I don't know if you were, like, think about what it would sounded like, but anyway, that's how I imagine it. I'm going to feed you with bread and meat in the morning and evening. At that point, Elijah doesn't go, there is no way. There is no way I'm going to be fed by ravens. We need to do this a different way. Now, he's just like, yeah, up for that. Raven breakfast and raven tea sounds good to me. And so that's what happens. He gets fed by ravens, meat and bread in the morning and in the evening, and drinks from the brook to keep himself alive, in hiding, in the desert. And that's where he stays, until the brook starts to dry up. And at that point, God then says, hey, I'm going to take you somewhere else to provide what you need. And so he says, go to Zarephath, and you're going to meet a widow. And that widow is going to be able to provide for you. And so he goes down and he meets at the gate this widow who's collecting sticks. And as she there is collecting sticks, he goes up to her and he says, Look, can you provide me some bread and some drink? And she says, Well, no, no no way. Like, do you not know what's going on? There hasn't been rain for months. Like, we have nothing left. I'm literally gathering this wood in order to use my last provisions for my son and I to have our last meal and then we're going to die. And Elijah looks at him and says, no, no, like God's told me a different story. If you would make me, bake me, a loaf, a small, a tiny loaf of bread before you have your last meal, I promise you, your flour and your oil will never run out amazingly, that's what she does. This heroine of the story takes God at his word and says, actually, what I've got I give to you and takes the flour and the oil and makes a little loaf of bread. And for the foreseeable future, the flour and the oil keep miraculously being supplemented by God in order that the whole household can eat and drink and stay alive. And then it comes this moment where the son of the widow gets ill and and dies. And at that point, it isn't that Elijah is unmoved by this. He's knitted into the family, and the widow is looking to him saying, I've lost everything. Like, where is God now? And that moment, Elijah takes her son, takes him to an upper room, lays him out, and then calls to God and says, have mercy. And then it says he lays on him and breathes life into him. And he's resurrected. These moments are like hyperlinks. As you suddenly realize, hey, I've heard that happening, like, since. Oh, because Jesus did it. Oh, Peter did it. Why? Oh, because it's the same God. It's not like someone dies, this is the how-to guide. You know, some kind of quick do, grab them, find an upper room. Lay out on them. No, it's not that. It's saying, no, remember this, because it's the same God who brings life. But anyway, it gets to this point, and Elijah's been hanging out with this family, you know, resurrecting sons, uh, miraculous flour and oil, and then three years passes, and God says, you need to go back. You need to go back to Ahab and tell them there's a new weather forecast. And so he goes back to find Ahab, and on his way... He actually knocks up and knocks into Obadiah, who's Ahab's servant. And Obadiah's been going around the kingdom trying to find food. Food not to keep people alive, but to keep horses alive for the king. That's what kind of king he was. People are dying because of drought. He's busy trying to gather food for his horses and donkeys. Oh, or I should have said horses. I forgot I'm adults, so I'm talking to you. horses and donkeys. As he goes there, Obadiah kind of runs into Elijah, sees him, he's like, oh man, you! we've been looking for you for three years to try and kill you. Elijah says, hey, I need to see the king, there's a new weather report, remember, I'm the weatherman, I just wanted to tell him, rain's coming, That this, this is rain. Um, Obadiah's like, no way, if I go back to the king, the king's just going to kill me, even just saying I've met you. Elijah says, no, that isn't going to happen, so... Obadiah goes to find the king. And he finds the king, and the king meets Elijah, goes out to meet him, and says, oh, no, not you, troublemaker. Elijah's like, you think I'm bringing the trouble? You're the troublemaker, not just you, your whole family. Rain's coming, but before the rain comes, there's going to be a showdown. You need to gather all the people, and I don't want you to gather... 850 of these so-called prophets of the god Baal. And we're going to have a showdown. We're going to have a a Western-style showdown shootout. Me versus 850. And how it's going to go down is this. He gathers all the people around this Mount Carmel and says, right, you've got a choice. You seem to be continuously living in this double standard. Is God the God, or are you going to go after these other gods of your own making? You've got to make a stand. There's a showdown about to happen. He says, well, what's going to happen is this. We're going to erect an altar. We're not going to sacrifice Ronald. We're going to erect an altar. And then you Baal guys, you go for it. And you call fire down from the sky to consume the altar. And if that happens, Baal's God. And man, everyone, let's just go after that. But if it doesn't, I'm going to call fire down. And if God, the God of Abraham, sends fire, then he's the God. And you need to do something about it. So that's what happens. So these 850 prophets of Baal kind of start dancing around and saying, Ooh, let's get some fire down. Let's get some fire down. I'm the fire starter. And they're doing it. They're singing. Nothing happens. gets to noon. Elijah starts to taunt them where's he God now? Is he asleep? Maybe you need to shout louder to wake him. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's gone on a journey. It gets to night and nothing has happened. At that point, it is the showdown moment. woo Boo-boo-boo! woo I'm too high there. Elijah's there. And he just goes, right, fetch the water. Everyone's like, what? This is a drought. Why are we using the water at this point? And he starts pouring water over the altar. So much so that it covers the entire thing. He digs a ditch around it and it fills that. People are looking on going, this isn't how you start fire. And then he just goes, God, you reveal yourself now send fire. And at that point, fire comes down and consumes. The altar fills the the trenches, dries up it all. And the whole of the people fall on their knees and say, God is God. At that point, Elijah looks at the king and says, hey, it's going to rain. Going to have a meal. So So the king gets in his chariot and starts to go off. Elijah looks to his servant and says, Hey, go and look out to sea because rains are coming. And so he's there, and the servant goes off, looks out to sea, nothing, comes back, there's nothing, he does it seven times, seventh time. Cloud as small as a man's hand he sees on the horizon. He speaks to Elijah, Rains are coming, Elijah says. At that point, the most amazing moment happens. God's strength comes on Elijah in such a degree that it says he tucks his robe into his pants. And then he sprints at such a speed that he overtakes the king in his chariot. Man, this is a fast guy. This is like an Avenger at this moment. He's a Marvel superhero. He gets to his destination, (coughs) screeches to a stop. The king arrives, says to his wife Jezebel, man, This is what's just gone down. Elijah has just called fire and it came and God has been revealed as God. And Jezebel says, "Eh, eh, This ain't happening on my watch. And sends a message to Elijah and says, I'm coming after you and I'm going to kill you. And at this moment, Elijah freaks. And you remember when, at the beginning, Elijah had that moment of confronting the king with the weather forecast it's not going to rain. This moment, he's now seen the rain coming. In that moment, God took him into hiding. In this moment, Elijah takes himself into hiding. Like the queen is after him. And so he goes and he hides under a bush. And he sits there. And he starts to talk to God and he says, God, I wish I was dead. Now We're talking about the guy who called fire down. We're talking about the guy who spoke, and there was a drought. And then suddenly, in this moment, life gets too much. Fear sets in, and he's hidden under a bush in the middle of nowhere, saying, God, I wish I was dead. And then it says God comes and meets with him and says, look, have some food to eat, have a sleep. That's what he does. He eats and he sleeps. Then God visits him again and says, have some food to eat and some sleep because you're about to go on a 40-day journey to a mountain because in that mountain, I'm going to come and meet you. And so that's what he does. He eats, and then he goes on a trip. He goes on a trip, and he finds himself to Mount Horeb. The only reason we ever use this thing is as a, as a prop. has no other worth. Um, and he's there on a mountain hidden in a cave. And God says to him, like, why are you here? And he says... Everyone's against me. I'm the only one left. I've done all I can, and it still doesn't feel enough to call your people back to you, to love you, and to reveal you. And then God says, I'm going to meet with you. Go and stand at the entrance to the cave. And so he does. He stands at the entrance to the cave, and then there's this enormous wind, like a hurricane-standard wind that just goes past. And Elijah thinks, God's not there. Then there's an earthquake that kind of knocks all the rocks and he's kind of thinking, man, I'm in a cave. This is scary, but God's not in that. Then it says there's like fire that goes past and Elijah thinks God's not in there. And then in this moment, this gentle breeze goes past. And as that happens, Elijah pulls up his hood and realizes that he's encountering with God. And in that stillness, God speaks to Elijah and says, look, you're not alone. I'm with you. But not only that, you're not alone. I'm going to bring others around you. You don't have to stay by yourself. You're meant to be with others. As he tells him about two individuals who are going to become king, but we haven't got time to look at those. We're going to rather look at this other person. He says, you're going to have one who's going to be like an apprentice to you. He's going to be more than that. He's going to be your friend. He's going to be your companion. And his his name's Elisha, and you're to go and find him. And so Elijah comes from this mountain experience and goes and finds Elisha and says, hey, would you come and be with me? And Elijah is no longer alone. He doesn't need to do these battles alone. We haven't got time to look at today. He then has moments of confrontation again with thrones. So he has to confront King Ahab, who, having seen what God can do, still does dumb stuff. To get what he wants. And then his son does the same and does dumb stuff, and Elijah has to confront them both and say, don't you remember who God is? I want to rather get to the end of Elijah's life. See, Elijah still didn't quite get that he didn't have to be alone. So it gets to the moment where he's realizing that he's going to be with God, and he does everything he can to get rid of his mate, Elisha. You read the story in Two Kings. He's like, continuously, like, we're going to go to Bethel, but you're not coming. Stay here. And then Elisha comes and they go to Bethel and he's like, oh, you stay here because I'm going somewhere else. And it's like, continuously trying to ditch someone. And Elisha's like, no, you're not meant to be alone. And they gets to this point where they get to the river and Elisha gets his cloak and they need to cross it and he just smacks his cloak. On the river, and Elijah then with Elisha crosses over. River parted. And then, as Elisha's there with Elijah, it says a chariot comes from the sky and takes Elijah to be with God. And then his robe kind of falls into Elisha's hands. And at that point, Elisha begs the question, asks the question. Where then is the Lord God of Elijah and hits the water and the water parts? Because that's where we're left with this story. 2 Kings 2 verse something, 14. Where now is the Lord the God of Elijah? That question is meant to be there for us to take hold of this story and say, hey, this is a crazy story of ravens, of fire. But when men are looking and say, but this is part of the story that reveals who God is. Therefore, in this story, we get to see the God of Elijah is still with us. It's still the one who is committed to see a king that would come, a king that would actually be himself, Jesus. He's still the one who would do the battles against the powers that seek to oppress his people, but would do it in the most remarkable way, not by sending fire, but by sending his son to die on a cross, in order that anyone and everyone who comes to see him for who he is would find life. He's still the God, the God of Elijah. Therefore, in this story, what it reveals to us about God is one who provides for us, just as he provided, amazingly, for Elijah through ravens, through flour and oil that don't run out. God comes and says, I provide for you, for me, everything we need daily. That was the rhythm. Elijah didn't ever get what he needed tomorrow. He got what he needed today. See, this story reminds us of a God who longs to provide for us what we need today. And the benchmark of that provision is Jesus. It reminds us, let's go back, sorry. It reminds us not only... Of he providing us. It's also that he knows us and searches us out. There was never a moment either when Elijah was taken into hiding or took himself into hiding, of where Elijah was on top of the mountain or Elijah was hidden under a bush saying, I wish I was dead, that God didn't go and find him and search him out. And I don't know what your story is at the moment, whether you feel like you're hidden in a bush thinking, this is it, I want out, or whether you feel like you're on a mountain thinking, this is the stand. God knows you. That's what this story says, and he searches you out. It reminds us that we are not alone, and that we have a God who's ensuring that we are not alone, that he is with us. But more than that, he always connects us to other people so we wouldn't be alone. It reminds us and reveals that God is one who is powerful. We so box God and say, oh, oh, this is who God is. These stories of men are meant to like unbox God, saying, man, I can't get my head around that. Ravens that feed people. I, what? Fire that comes down from the sky? It's like a story where you say, I need to unbox God. God is bigger than my frame of reference. And we have a God who loves us. A God who does not give up. That's what I love about the stories, That often we can look and say, well, it seems to be the Old Testament mean God, the New Testament nice God. That's the same God. Maybe the Old Testament where we see these moments is actually a God who's continuously pursuing a people who are continuously saying, "We don't want anything to do with you," pointing to our need of Jesus. But continuously showing this is a God who loves us, who wants our best. And however much we kind of say, I know that's what you want from me, God. But I'm going to do this. God doesn't give up. He keeps pursuing us. And it may not be Elijah Weatherman who come in our path. It might be whoever, our friend, our sister, our brother who comes alongside and says, don't go this way. Because God loves us. But it doesn't just reveal that about God. It also reveals something about us. So he reveals and reminds us that, if we go to the next slide, that God longs to be revealed through us. Elijah isn't any different to any one of us. So we can look and think, yeah, but he ran faster than chariots. He called fire down. No, he was a frail human being who had moments where he wished he was dead, who often isolated himself from others, and yet was willing to step in the gap and say, God, I want to honor you and reveal you in all my frailty. And I don't know about you, that sounds a lot like me. I think I often find myself pretty flawed, pretty weak, pretty vulnerable. I just have to keep getting back to that point of saying, God, where I've been placed, I just want to honor you, and I want to reveal you in all the complexities that I'm dealing with. It also reminds us of that fact that God meets us in our frailty. God didn't leave Elijah under the bush. But he did go and meet him there. He didn't wait for him to come out and find the cave and go up the mountain for the experience. He came down and went under the bush with him and heard him say, I wish I was dead. God is a God who meets us in our frailty. Therefore, we're left with this story, with this one question. What is it that has in fact impacted you today in respect to this story? That's what we leave.